0: I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiongo Line. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Bowman, Brian Peterson, Carol Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke, all members of the Apiongo Readers' Theatre. Our show today involves 20 classic poems and one very famous short story, all dealing with the joys and sorrows of winter. For you see, up here in the upper Mattawaska Valley, winter is not just a season to passively endure. Rather, it's a rite of passage. In fact, we have a unique way of describing what others merely call one of the Four Seasons. In the Madawaska Valley, we call it wintering over, because it's much, much more than something to simply suffer through. Indeed, for nearly 200 years, we here in the upper Madawaska Valley have thought of winter not as something to passively accept, but something with which to actively engage. We know winter up here is not for the faint of heart or weak need, it's for the hardy old and young souls who have both the imagination and determination to deal with it. Some, of course, who spend just one winter in the Madawaska Valley when spring arrives, pack up and are never seen again. Others, the more steady of soul, decide to throw in with us and stay despite the harshest things that winter can throw at us all. And we're not just talking your average blizzard of blowing snow and sub zero temperatures that can last for weeks. No, we're talking of those bleak midwinter doldrums that seem intent on sucking the very life force out of anyone who dares to challenge the dreariest, darkest days of winter by meeting winter's inherent desperation and despair with the giddy joy and beauty of the human condition. Yes. We used words like joy and beauty to describe the worst of our Canadian winters. Indeed, wintering over, if it has any meaning at all, somehow creates a unique sense of character and appreciation for the place where we live. It makes us want to stay here come hell or high water, even if hell freezes over, and it sometimes does here in the Upper Madawaska. Not too surprisingly, wintering over is not an uncommon experience for many people in other parts of Canada as well, but it remains our term for easily separating the wheat from the chaff, or differentiating those people who quickly learn to love winter and those who, like snowbirds, love to fly away down south as far as they possibly can get upon the first whiff of winter. So today, we thought it was high time to make it perfectly clear to those who may not know it. We, in the upper Madawaska Valley, celebrate winter, and we celebrate those who make it through that unique rite of passage, and most important of all, we celebrate those who do more than just survive a winter of some nameless discontent. We celebrate those who come out on the other side of wintering over and who miraculously learn to love its beauty and especially cherish winter's enduring gift of letting us see beyond it by firing up our imaginations. There's nowhere better to begin such an appreciation of winter than with those wordsmiths who have long known the joys of wintering over, those clear-eyed poets the world over who celebrate that bitter one yet giddy joy of winter. Here, for instance, is one of our favorite poems that expresses that unique joy found in a Canadian winter A sentiment, we might add, that can be shared by any sane person who has successfully wintered over and who understands of what this anonymous Canadian poet speaks.
1: It's winter here in Canada, and the gentle breezes blow, 70 miles an hour at 35 below. Oh, how I love Canada when the snow's up to your butt. You take a breath of winter, and your nose gets frozen shut. Yes, the weather here is wonderful. So I guess I'll hang around. I could never leave Canada. I'm frozen to the frickin' ground.
0: Surely you didn't expect us to start with some deadly serious dirge full of bleak despair. Of course not! Winter, to those of us who enjoy it, learned early as children that winter is full of frolic and light-hearted fun. Yes, it can be bleak and blizzardy at times, but that's hardly worth mentioning. Though, if we must acknowledge the seriousness of winter and thus raise our sense of poetry from that of a little light verse, it's probably best to raise it with the likes of Archibald Lampman, a Canadian poet
2: with a masterful sense of wintering over. The frost that stings like fire upon my cheek, the loneliness of this forsaken ground, the long white drift upon whose powdered peak I sit in the great silence as one bound the rippled sheet of snow where the wind blew across the open fields for miles ahead the far-off city towered and roofed in blue a tender line upon the western red the stars that singly then in flocks appear like jets of silver from the violet dome so wonderful so many and so near and then the golden moon to light me home the crunching snowshoes and the stinging air and silence, frost, and beauty everywhere. A little more dignified, you
0: might say. But if you listened closely, you'll see that Mr. Lampman pretty much approaches winter as did our first Master of Light verse. Still, winter has long been a serious subject for the greatest of world poets, even those who did not have the benefit of experiencing our uniquely Canadian winters up here in the upper Mattawaska Valley. Take poor William Shakespeare, who sadly went to his grave centuries ago, never having known the joy of walking from Berys Bay to Wilno, or Combermere, in a blinding snowstorm, yet he still somehow
3: managed to capture our local sense of winter, if only metaphorically. How like a winter hath my absence been from thee, the pleasure of the fleeting year! What freezings have I felt, what dark days seen, what old December's bareness everywhere! And yet... This time removed was summer's time, the teeming autumn, big with rich increase, bearing the wanton burden of the prime, like widowed wombs after their lord's decease, yet this abundant issue seemed to me, but hope of orphans and unfathered fruit, for summer and his pleasures wait on thee, and thou away, the very birds are mute, Or, if they sing, tis with so dull a cheer that leaves look pale, dreading the winters near.
0: Okay, maybe that's a tad rich for some appetites. Young Will probably wouldn't have survived our winters, given that last line, which seems to leave him dreading the coming of winter. Canadian winters are probably an acquired taste, somewhat like wine, or poetry itself. Even some of those great American poets, much like our famous English bard, Mr. Shakespeare himself, seem only to pay the joys of winter lip service. Take Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote this famous poem about a winter snowstorm.
1: Announced by all the trumpets of the sky, arrives the snow. And driving o'er the fields, seems nowhere to alight. The whited air hides hills and woods, the river and the heaven and veils the farmhouse at the garden's end the sled and traveller stopped the courier's feet delayed all friends shut out the housemates sit around the radiant fireplace enclosed in the tumultuous privacy of storm come see the north wind's masonry out of an unseen quarry evermore finished with a tile the fierce artificer curves his white bastions with projected roof round every windward stake or tree or door speeding the myriad hand at his wild work so fanciful so savage not cares he for number or proportion mockingly on coop or kennel he hangs parian wreaths a swan-like form invests the hidden thorn fills up the farmer's lane from wall to wall mogger the farmer's sighs and at the gate a tapering turret overtops the work and when his hours are numbered and the world and all his own Retiring as he were not, leaves when the sun appears astonished art to mimic in slow structures, stone by stone, built in an age the mad wind's night work, the frolic architecture of the snow.
0: Close, but no cigar. Mr. Emerson sees the beauty of winter as static. Something to be observed, but not something to be enjoyed by diving right into it and rolling around in the snow, flapping one's arms and legs and creating, what else, but snow angels. No, it takes a Canadian poet, such as Bliss Carmen, to really see a winter scene.
3: The rutted roads are all like iron. Skies are keen and brilliant. Only the oak leaves cling in the bare woods or the hearty bittersweet drivers have put their sheepskin jackets on and all the ponds are sealed with sheeted ice that rings with stroke of skate and hockey stick or in the twilight cracks with running whoop. Bring in the logs of oak and hickory and make an ample blaze upon the wide hearth. Now is the time with winter o'er the world for books and friends and yellow candlelight and timeless lingering by the settling fire while all the shuddering stars are keen with cold. Out from the silent portal of the hours, when frosts are come, and all the hosts put on their burnished gear to march across the night, and o'er a darkened earth in splendor shine. Slowly, above the world, Orion wheels his glittering square, while on the shadowy hill and throbbing like a sea light through the dusk, great Sirius rises in his flashing blue. Lord of the winter night, August and pure, returning year on year untouched by time, to heart and faith with thine unfaltering fire. There are no hurts that beauty cannot ease, no ills that love cannot at last repair in the victorious progress of the soul. Russet and white and grey is the oak wood in the great snow. Still from the north it comes, whispering, settling, sifting through the trees, or loading branch and twig. The road is lost. Clearing and meadow, Stream and ice-bound pond are made once more a trackless wilderness in the white hush, where not a creature stirs, and the pale sun is blotted from the sky. In that strange twilight, the lone traveler halts to listen to the stealthy snowflakes fall, and then, far off toward the Stamford shore, where through the storm the coastwise liners go, faint and recurrent on the muffled air, a foghorn booming through the smother, hark. When the day changed and the mad wind died down, the powdery drifts that all day long had blown across the meadows and the open fields, or whirled like diamond dust in the bright sun, settled to rest, and for a tranquil hour, the lengthening bluish shadows on the snow stole down the orchard slope, and a rose light flooded the earth with beauty and with peace. Then, in the west behind the cedar's black, the sinking sun stained red the winter dusk with sullen flare upon the snowy ridge, as a masterpiece by Hokusai, where on a background gray, with flaming breath, a scarlet dragon dies in dusty gold. Now
0: there's a poet who can experience a snowstorm yet see a scarlet dragon. That's a man with true Canadian love of winter. Still, We will admit there are many non-Canadian poets who have caught on to the idea of wintering over. Take one of our favorite British poets of the late 19th century, Christina Rossetti.
4: In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, Long, long ago, angels and archangels may have traveled there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what can I give him? Give him my heart. Give him my
0: heart. Now there's a 19th century woman who understands winter. No wonder Rossetti's poem was set to music and became a famous hymn played throughout the 20th century and, even more recently, made a graceful but unexpected appearance in the BBC's recent mini-series, Peaky Blinders. But as much as Rossetti's poem might have found sudden fame in the 21st century, it's interesting to remember that one of Canada's most famous poems about winter from the mid-19th century is now almost but forgotten. It was written by Pamela S. Fining and it's called Under the Snow. Upon its publication in 1864, it was favorably compared to the best work of Ralph Waldo Emerson and other great American poets of her era. Here it is in full.
4: Over the mountains, under the snow, lieth a valley, cold and low. Neath a white, immovable pall, desolate, dreary, soulless all. And soundless, save when the wintry blast sweeps with funeral music past. Yet was that valley not always so. For I trod its summer paths long ago. And I gathered flowers of fairest dyes where now the snow-drift heaviest lies. And I drank from rills that with murmurous song wandered in golden light along through bowers whose ever-fragrant air was heavy with perfume of flowerets fair. Through cool green meadows where all day long the wild bee droned his voluptuous song while over all shone the eye of love in the violet-tinted heavens above. And through that valley ran veins of gold, and the rivers o'er beds of amber rolled. There were pearls in the white sands thickly sown, and rocks that diamond-crusted shone, all richest fruitage, all rarest flowers, all sweetest music of summer bowers. All sounds, the softest, all sights most fair, made earth a paradise everywhere. Over the mountains, under the snow, lieth that valley cold and low. There came no slowly consuming blight, but the snow swept silently down at night. And when the morning looked forth again, the seal of silence was on the plain, and fount and forest and bower and stream were hidden all from his pallid beam. And there, deep hidden under the snow, is buried the wealth of the long ago. Pearls and diamonds, veins of gold, priceless treasures of worth untold harps of wonderful sweetness stilled, while yet the air was with music filled, hands that stirred the resounding string to melodies such as the angels sing, faces radiant with smile and tear that bent and raptured the strains to hear, and high, calm foreheads and earnest eyes that came and went beneath sunset skies there they are lying under the snow and the winds moan over them sad and low pale still faces that smile no more calm closed eyelids whose light is o'er silent lips that will never again move to music's entrancing strain white hands folded o'er marble breasts each under the mantling snowdrift rests, and the wind their requiem sounds o'er and o'er, in the oft-repeated, No more, no more, no more, no more. I shall ever hear that funeral dirge in its moanings drear, but I may not linger with faltering tread and near my treasures and near my dead. On through many a thorny maze, up slippery rocks and through tangled ways, lieth my cloud-mantled path afar from that buried vale where my treasures are. But there bursts a light through the heavy gloom, from the sun-bright towers of my distant home. Fainter, the wail of the sad, no more, is heard as I slowly near that shore. And the sweet home voices come soft and low, Half-drowning that requiem's dirge-like flow. I know it is sorrow's baptism stern That has given me thus for my home to yearn, That has quickened my ear to the tender call Which down from the jasper height doth fall, And lifted my soul from the songs of earth To music of higher and holier birth turning the tide of a yearning love to the beautiful things that are found above. And I bless my father through blinding tears for the chastening love of departed years, for hiding my idols so low, so low, over the mountains, under the snow.
0: Not bad and not a little useful in understanding why wintering over can produce such a positive feeling among Canadians. Still, there are a few American poets who have caught the drift of wintering over. Emily Dickinson, for one, certainly did in this short
3: little effort about snow. It sifts from leaden sieves. It powders all the wood. It fills with alabaster wool the wrinkles of the road. It makes an even face of mountain and of plain, unbroken forehead from the east unto the east again. It reaches to the fence, it wraps it, rail by rail, till it is lost in fleeces, it deals celestial veil. To stump and stack and stem, a summer's empty room, acres of joints, where harvests were recordless, but for them. It ruffles wrists of posts, as ankles of a queen, then stills its artisans like ghosts denying they have been.
0: There's just something in that poem that makes you want to run out and play as if a child in the snow. That's the true spirit of wintering over. Just listen to another poem by Archibald Lampman, who also wrote about snow.
2: White are the far-off plains, and white the fading forests grow. The wind dies out along the height, And denser still the snow. A gathering weight on roof and tree falls down, scarce audibly. The road before me smooths and fills, apace and all about. The fences dwindle and the hills are blotted slowly out. The naked trees loom spectrally into the dim white sky. The meadows and far-sheeted streams lie still without a sound. Like some soft minister of dreams, the snowfall hoods me round. In wood and water, earth and air, a silence everywhere. Save when at lowly intervals, some farmer's sleigh urged on with rustling runners and sharp bells, swings by me and is gone. Or from the empty waste I hear a sound remote and clear, The barking of a dog, or call to cattle sharply peeled, born echoing from some wayside stall or barnyard far afield. Then all is silent, and the snow falls settling soft and slow. The evening deepens, and the grey folds closer earth and sky. The world seems shrouded far away, its noises sleep and I, as secret as yon buried stream plod dumbly on and dream.
0: If there ever was a tagline for wintering over, it's Mr. Lampman's contradictory last line, plod dumbly on and dream. How's that possible, you ask? Well, anyone who more than just survived one winter in the upper Madawaska Valley knows exactly how. At least anyone who wants to stay here for another winter, and another, and another, and another. Now, we don't lay claim to being the only people who love winter and all the joy that it can bring to anyone with a capacity to dream of all its possibilities, even when dumbly plodding on. Sarah Teasdale, like Emily Dickinson, seems to have figured out wintering over as well. Listen carefully to her following
4: two poems, February Twilight and A Blue Jay. I stood beside a hill smooth with new-laid snow. A single star looked out from the cold evening glow. There was no other creature that saw what I could see. I stood and watched the evening star as long as it watched me. Crisply the bright snow whispered, crunching beneath our feet. Behind us, as we walked along the parkway, our shadows danced fantastic shapes in vivid blue across the lake the skaters flew to and fro with sharp turns weaving a frail invisible net in ecstasy the earth drank the silver sunlight in ecstasy the skaters drank the wine of speed in ecstasy we laughed drinking the wine of love had not the music of our joy sounded its highest note But no, for suddenly, with lifted eyes, you said, Oh, look! There, on the black bough of a snow-flecked maple, fearless and gay as our love, a blue jay cocked his crest. Oh, who can tell the range of joy or set the bounds of beauty?
0: Now there's somebody who understands the carefree joy that winter can bring, and often does, even amidst the worst blizzard. That's the stuff of somebody who learns the only lesson worth learning while wintering over. Here's another one of those forgotten Canadian poets who knew that same joy of wintering over, and yet who learned it amidst what Rossetti coined as her bleak midwinter. Her name was Agnes E. Weatherald, and those of us who know her work know she deserves to be remembered as much as Bliss Carman or Archibald Lampman. Here is her poem, A Winter
3: Picture. An air as sharp as steel. A sky pierced with a million points of fire. The level fields, hard, white, and dry. A road as straight and tense as wire. No hint of human voice or face in frost below or fire above, save where the smoke's blue billowing grace flies flag-like from the roofs of love. In essence, Wetherald, like Lampman,
0: Dickinson, Rossetti and others that we have already heard from somehow managed to seize a moment of winter victory out from the jaws of bleak midwinter defeat. That, if anything, is the true inspiration to be found in wintering over. We know that despite the worst that winter can throw at us, there is always some giddy joy, enduring warmth, or genuine beauty that can be found in winter if only one has the heart to see it or feel it. Take, for instance... These next two poems are about a subject near and dear to those in the forest industry who once built the lumber economy of our local area. The first one is called The Woodcutter's Night Song and is by John Clare, a British poet. And the second one is by Archibald Lampman and it's called The Woodcutter's Hut.
1: Welcome, red and roundy sun, dropping lowly in the west. Now my hard day's work is done. I'm as happy as the best. Joyful are the thoughts of home, now I'm ready for my chair. So till tomorrow morning's come, bill and mittens, lie ye there. Though to leave your pretty song, little birds, it gives me pain, yet tomorrow is not long, then I'm with you all again. If I stop and stand about, well, I know how things will be, Judy will be looking out, every now and then, for me. So, fare ye well, and hold your tongues, Sing no more until I come. They're not worthy of your songs That never care to drop a crumb. All day long I love the oaks, But at night yon little cot Where I see the chimney smokes Is by far the prettiest spot. Wife and children all are there To revive with pleasant looks, Table ready set and chair, Supper hanging on the hooks. So as ever I get in, When my faggot down I fling, Little prattlers, they begin, teasing me to talk and sing. Welcome, red and roundy sun, dropping lowly in the west. Now my hard day's work is done. I'm as happy as the best. Joyful are the thoughts of home. Now I'm ready for my chair. So till tomorrow morning's come, bill and mittens, lie
2: ye there. The Woodcutter's Hut Archibald Lampman. Far up in the wild and wintry hills, in the heart of the cliff broken woods, where the mounded drifts lie soft and deep in the noiseless solitudes, the hut of the lonely woodcutter stands, a few rough beams that show, a blunted peak and a low black line from the glittering waste of snow. In the frost-still dawn from his roof goes up in windless, motionless air the thin pink curl of leisurely smoke through the forest white and bare. The woodcutter follows his narrow trail and the morning rings and cracks with the rhythmic jet of his sharp-blown breath and the echoing shout of his axe. Only the waft of the wind besides or the stir of some hardy bird— The call of the friendless chickadee or the pat of the nuthatch is heard. Or a rustle comes from a dusky clump where the busy siskins feed and scatter the dimpled sheet of the snow with the shells of the cedar seed. Day after day the woodcutter toils untiring with axe and wedge till the jingling teams come up from the road that runs by the valley's edge. WITH PLUNGING OF HORSES AND HURLING OF SNOW, AND MANY A SHOUTED WORD, AND CARRY AWAY THE keen scented FRUIT OF HIS CUTTING, CORD UPON CORD. NOT THE SOUND OF A LIVING FOOT COMES ELSE, NOT A MOVING VISITANT THERE, SAVE THE DELICATE STEP OF SOME HALTING DOE, OR THE SNIFF OF A PROWLING BEAR. And only the stars are above him at night, and the trees that creak and groan, and the frozen, hard swept mountain crests with their silent fronts of stone. As he watches the sinking glow of his fire and the wavering flames up caught, cleaning his rifle or mending his moccasins, sleepy and slow of thought, or when the fierce snow comes and the rising wind from the gray northeast. He lies through the leaguring hours in his bunk like a winter-hidden beast, or sits on the hard-packed earth and smokes by his draft-blown guttering fire, without thought of remembrance, hardly awake, and waits for the storm to tire. Scarcely he hears from the rock-rimmed heights to the wild ravines below, near and far off the limitless wings of the tempest hurl and go." in roaring gusts that plunge through the cracking forest, and lull and lift, all day without stint, and all night long, with the sleep of the hissing drift. But winter shall pass, ere long, with its hills of snow and its fettered dreams, and the forest shall glimmer with living gold, and chime with the gushing streams." Millions of little points of plants shall prick through its matted floor, and the windflower lift and uncurl her silken buds by the woodman's door. The sparrow shall see and exult, but lo, as the spring draws gaily on, the woodcutter's hut is empty and bare, and the master that made it is gone. He is gone where the gathering of valley men, another labour yields, to handle the plough and the harrow and scythe in the heat of the summer fields. He is gone with his corded arms and his ruddy face and his moccasined feet, the animal man in his warmth and vigour, sound and hard and complete. And all summer long round the lonely hut, the black earth, burgeons and breeds, till the spaces are filled with the tall plumed ferns and the triumphing forest weeds. The thick wild raspberries hem its walls and stretching on either hand, the red-ribbed stems and the giant leaves of the sovereign spikenard stand. So lonely and silent it is, so withered and warped with the sun and snow. You think it the fruit of some dead man's toil a hundred years ago, and he who finds it suddenly there as he wanders far and alone is touched with a sweet and beautiful sense of something tender and gone the sense of a struggling life in the waste and the mark of a soul's command the going and coming of vanished feet the touch of a human hand
0: perhaps that's the best of mr lampman a poem that points to the real art of surviving any winter learning to believe in what must follow winter, learning to accept that, despite the deepest winter snow, surely spring cannot be far behind. Put another way, winter is about seeing what is not there, hearing what no voice can speak, knowing that the impossible might just be possible. Listen closely now to Archibald Lampman's next poem, simply called Midnight.
1: From where I sit, I see the stars. And down the chilly floor, the moon between the frozen bars is glimmering, dim and hoar. Without, in many a peaked mound, the glinting snowdrifts lie. There is no voice or living sound. The embers slowly die. Yet some wild thing is in mine ear. I hold my breath and hark. Out of the depth I seem to hear a crying in the dark. No sound of man or wife or child, no sound of beast that groans, or of the wind that whistles wild, or of the tree that moans. I know not what it is I hear. I bend my head and hark. I cannot drive it from my ear, that crying in the dark.
0: Winter is never very complex if one can simply get past the old saw of seeing is believing. Rather, winter involves the reverse. Believing is what really lets us see. Here's another British example of that principle, a poem about winter from that great English poet and author Thomas Hardy,
3: called The Darkling Thrush. I leaned upon a coppice gate when frost was spectre grey, and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind-stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to me the century's corpse outlent, its crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, its death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken, hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead, in a full-hearted even song of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small, with blast-beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. Now that's a poem for bleak midwinter,
0: and that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about wintering over. It's about listening for that sound of an impossible little bird seeing something far off in the distance that's almost impossible to see, or just enjoying the ridiculous joy of doing something foolish, imaginative, and thoroughly extravagant like,
4: well, skating. My glad feet shod with a glittering steel. I was the god of the winged heel. The hills in the far white sky were lost. The world lay still in the wide white frost. And the woods hung hushed in their long white dream by the ghostly, glimmering ice-blue stream. Here was a pathway smooth like glass, where I and the wandering wind might pass to the far-off places drifted deep where winter's retinue rests in sleep. I followed the lure. I fled like a bird till the startled hollows awoke and heard a spinning whisper a sibilant twang, as the stroke of the steel on the tense ice rang, and the wandering wind was left behind as faster, faster, I followed my mind, till the blood sang high in my eager brain, and the joy of my flight was almost pain. Then I stayed the rush of my eager speed, and silently went as a drifting seed slowly, furtively, till my eyes grew big with the awe of a dim surmise. And the hair of my neck began to creep at hearing the wilderness talk in sleep. Shapes in the fir gloom drifted near. In the deep of my heart, I heard my fear. I turned and fled like a soul pursued from the white inviolate. Solitude. That poem, The Skater, is by Charles G. D.
0: Roberts, another great Canadian poet who knew a thing or two about celebrating winter. Here's another one by Mr. Roberts, simply called The Winter Fields.
3: Winds here, and sleet, and frost that bites like steel. The low bleak hill rounds under the low sky. Naked of flock and fold the fallows lie, thin streaked with meager drift. The gusts reveal by fits the dim gray snakes of fence That steal through the white dusk. The hill-foot poplars sigh While storm and death with winter trample by, And the iron fields ring sharp and blind lights reel. Yet, in the lonely ridges, wrenched with pain, Harsh solitary hillocks, bound and dumb, Grave glebes close-lipped beneath the scourge and chain, Lurks hit the germ of ecstasy, the sum of life that waits on summer, till the rain whisper in April and the crocus come.
0: And so it is that some Canadians, and not only those up here in the upper Mattawaska Valley, have learned to master the art of enjoying winter. Still, wintering over, as we have already said before, it is not for the faint of heart, or for those who refuse to brave the elements, or who deny winter's power, including its sometimes deadly majesty, Indeed, even our man, Archibald Lampman, knew enough to respect that deadly aspect
2: of winter. Here is one of his best poems, Winter Evening. Tonight the very horses springing by toss gold from whitened nostrils. In a dream the streets that narrow to the westward gleam like rows of golden palaces and high from all the crowded chimneys tower and die a thousand aureoles. Down in the west, the brimming plains beneath the sunset rest, our burning sea of gold. Soon, soon shall fly the glorious vision, and the hours shall feel a mightier master. Soon from height to height, with silence and the sharp unpitying stars, stern creeping frost and winds that touch like steel, out of the depth beyond the eastern bars, glittering and still shall come. The Awful Night. Lampman indeed acknowledges winter's
0: awful night, but he also acknowledges the inherent beauty of winter. Here is our last poem that truly celebrates all the joy and beauty and imagination that a poet like Archibald Lampman can muster when it comes to seeing and believing in the benefits of wintering over. It's called Winter Break.
3: All day between high-curded clouds, The sun shone down like summer on the steaming planks. The long, bright icicles in dwindling ranks dripped from the murmuring eaves till one by one they fell. As if the spring had now begun, the quilted snow, sun-softened to the core, loosened and shunted with a sudden roar from downward roofs. Not even with day done had ceased the sound of waters, but all night I heard it. In my dreams, forgetfully bright, methought I wandered in the April woods where many a silver-piping sparrow was by gurgling brooks and spouting solitudes and stooped and laughed and plucked hepaticas. And so there you have
0: it, 20 poems that celebrate not just winter, but 20 poems that define the joy and wonder of wintering over in the upper Mattawaska Valley. Or just about any rural valley anywhere in Canada. They are not the stuff of a bleak midwinter that dominates with despair and sorrow. Rather, they build quite the case for enjoying those unique moments in a winter landscape where the human spirit can truly learn to deal positively with its seemingly inhospitable surroundings. Still, we would be remiss if we didn't include in today's show a certain terrible beauty as William Butler Yeats that great Irish poet, once called a similar situation. It's what happens when man, despite all his rational powers to avoid danger, instead chooses, for one reason or another, to pay little heed to common sense. Sadly, it's a story of what can and often did happen more than once in the early days of the Madawaska Valley, when winter and its deadly power was not respected. Here is Jack London's To Build a Fire.
5: Day had dawned cold and grey when the man turned aside from the main Yukon Trail. He climbed the high earth bank where a little travelled trail led east through the pine forest. It was a high bank, and he paused to breathe at the top. He excused the act to himself by looking at his watch. It was nine o'clock in the morning. There was no sun or promise of sun. Although there was not a cloud in the sky, it was a clear day. However, there seemed to be an indescribable darkness over the face of things. That was because the sun was absent from the sky. This fact did not worry the man. He was not alarmed by the lack of sun. It had been days since he had seen the sun. The man looked back along the way he had come. The Yukon lay a mile wide and hidden under three feet of ice. On top of this ice were as many feet of snow. It was all pure white. North and south, as far as his eye could see, it was unbroken white. The only thing that relieved the whiteness was a thin dark line that curved from the pine covered island to the south. It curved into the north, where it disappeared behind another pine covered island. This dark line was the trail, the main trail. It led 500 miles south to the Chilkoot Pass and salt water. It led north seventy-five miles to Dawson, and still farther on to the north, a thousand miles to New Latu, and finally to St. Michael on the Bering Sea, a thousand miles and half a thousand more. But all this, the distant trail, no sun in the sky, the great cold, and the strangeness of it all, had no effect on the man. It was not because he was long familiar with it, He was a newcomer in the land, and this was his first winter. The trouble with him was that he was not able to imagine. He was quick and ready in the things of life, but only in the things, and not in their meanings. Fifty degrees below zero meant eighty degrees of frost. Such facts told him that it was cold and uncomfortable, and that was all did not lead him to consider his weaknesses as a creature affected by temperature. Nor did he think about man's general weakness, able to live only within narrow limits of heat and cold. From there it did not lead him to thoughts of heaven and the meaning of a man's life. Fifty degrees below zero meant a bite of frost that hurt, and that must be guarded against by the use of mittens, ear coverings, warm moccasins, and thick socks. Fifty degrees below zero was to him nothing more than fifty degrees below zero. That it should be more important than that was a thought that had never entered his head. As he turned to go, he forced some water from his mouth as an experiment. There was a sudden noise that surprised him. He tried it again, and again, in the air, before they could fall to the snow, the drops of water became ice that broke with a noise. He knew that at 50 below zero, water from the mouth made a noise when it hit the snow. But this had done that in the air. Undoubtedly, it was colder than 50 below, but exactly how much colder, he did not know. But the temperature did not matter. He was headed for the old camp on Henderson Creek, where the boys were already. They had come across the mountain from the Indian Creek country. He had taken the long trail to look at the possibility of floating logs from the islands in the Yukon down the river when the ice melted. He would be in camp by six o'clock that evening. It would be a little after dark, but the boys would be there, a fire would be burning, and a hot supper would be ready. As he thought of lunch, he pressed his hand against the package under his jacket. It was also under his shirt, wrapped in a handkerchief, and lying for warmth against the naked skin. "'otherwise the bread would freeze. "'He smiled contentedly to himself "'as he thought of those pieces of bread, "'each of which enclosed a generous portion of cooked meat. "'He plunged among the big pine trees. "'The trail was not well marked here. "'Several inches of snow had fallen "'since the last sled had passed. "'He was glad he was without a sled. "'Actually, he carried nothing but the lunch "'wrapped in the handkerchief. "'He was surprised, however, at the cold.' It certainly was cold, he decided, as he rubbed his nose and face with his mittened hand. He had a good growth of hair on his face, but that did not protect his nose or the upper part of his face from the frosty air. Following at the man's heels was a big native dog. It was a wolf dog, gray-coated and not noticeably different from its brother, the wild wolf. The animal was worried by the great cold. It knew that this was no time for traveling. Its own feeling was closer to the truth than the man's judgment. In reality, it was not merely colder than 50 below zero. It was colder than 60 below, than 70 below. It was 75 below zero. Because the freezing point is 32 above zero, it meant that there were 107 degrees of frost. The dog did not know anything about temperatures. Possibly in its brain there was no understanding of a condition of very cold, such as was in the man's brain. But the animal sensed the danger. Its fear made it question eagerly every movement of the man as if expecting him to go into camp or to seek shelter somewhere and build a fire. The dog had learned about fire, and it wanted fire. Otherwise, it would dig itself into the snow and find shelter from the cold air. The frozen moistness of its breathing had settled on its fur in a fine powder of frost. The hair on the man's face was similarly frosted, but more solidly. It took the form of ice and increased with every warm, moist breath from his mouth. Also, the man had tobacco in his mouth. The ice held his lips so tightly together that he could not empty the juice from his mouth. The result was a long piece of yellow ice hanging from his lips. If he fell down, it would break, like glass, into many pieces. He expected the ice formed by the tobacco juice, having been out twice before when it was very cold. But it had not been as cold as this, he knew. He continued through the level forest for several miles. Then he went down a bank to the frozen path of a small stream. This was Henderson Creek, and he knew he was ten miles from where the stream divided. He looked at his watch. It was ten o'clock. He was traveling at the rate of four miles an hour. Thus, he figured that he would arrive where the stream divided at half past twelve. He decided he would eat his lunch when he arrived there. The dog followed again at his heels with its tail hanging low as the man started to walk along the frozen stream. The old sled trail could be seen, but a dozen inches of snow covered the marks of the last sleds. In a month, no man had travelled up or down that silent creek. The man went steadily ahead. He was not much of a thinker. At that moment, he had nothing to think about, except that he would eat lunch at the Stream's Divide, and that at six o'clock he would be in camp with the boys. There was nobody to talk to, and had there been, speech would not have been possible because of the ice around his mouth. Once in a while, the thought repeated itself that it was very cold and that he had never experienced such cold. As he walked along, he rubbed his face and nose with the back of his mittened hand. He did this without thinking, frequently changing hands. But with all his rubbing, the instant he stopped, his face and nose became numb. His face would surely be frozen. He knew that, and he was sorry that he had not worn the sort of nose guard Bud wore when it was cold. Such a guard passed across the nose and covered the entire face. But it did not matter much, he decided. What was a little frost? A bit painful, that was all. It was never serious. Empty as the man's mind was of thoughts, he was most observant. He noticed the changes in the creek, the curves and the bends, and always he noted where he placed his feet. Once, coming around a bend, he moved suddenly to the side like a frightened horse. He curved away from the place where he had been walking and retraced his steps several feet along the trail. He knew the creek was frozen to the bottom. No creek could name water in that winter, but he knew also that there were streams of water that came out from the hillsides and ran along under the snow and on top of the ice of the creek. He knew that even in the coldest weather, these streams were never truly frozen, and he also knew their danger. They hid pools of water under the snow that might be three inches deep or three feet. Sometimes a skin of ice half an inch thick covered them and in turn was covered by the snow. Sometimes there was both water and thin ice, and when a man broke through, he could get very wet. That was why he had jumped away so suddenly. He had felt the ice move under his feet. He had also heard the noise of the snow-covered ice skin breaking and to get his feet wet in such a temperature meant trouble and danger. At the very least, it meant delay, because he would be forced to stop and build a fire. Only under its protection could he bear his feet while he dried his socks and moccasins. He stood and studied the creek bottom and its banks. He decided that the flowing stream of water came from the right side. He thought a while, rubbing his nose and face. Then he walked to the left. He stepped carefully and tested the ice at each step. Once away from the danger, he continued at his four-mile pace. During the next two hours, he came to several similar dangers. Usually, the snow above the pools had a sunken appearance. However, once again, he came near to falling through the ice. Once, sensing danger, he made the dog go ahead. The dog did not want to go. It hesitated until the man pushed it forward. Then it went quickly across the white, unbroken surface. Suddenly it fell through the ice, but climbed out the other side, which was firm. It had wet its feet and legs. Almost immediately, the water on them turned to ice. The dog made quick efforts to get the ice off its legs. Then it lay down in the snow and began to bite out the ice that had formed between the toes. The animal knew enough to do this. To permit the ice to remain would mean sore feet. It did not know this. It merely obeyed the commands that arose from the deepest part of its being. But the man knew these things, having learned them from experience. He removed the mitten from his right hand and helped the dog tear out the pieces of ice. He did not bear his fingers for more than a minute and was surprised to find that they were numb. It certainly was cold. He pulled on the mitten quickly and beat the hand across his breast. At twelve o'clock the day was at its brightest yet the sun did not appear in the sky. At half-past twelve on the minute, he arrived at the divide of the creek. He was pleased at his rate of speed. If he continued, he would certainly be with the boys by six o'clock that evening. He unbuttoned his jacket and shirt and pulled forth his lunch. The action took no more than a quarter of a minute, yet in that brief moment the numbness touched his bare fingers. He did not put the mitten on, but instead stuck the fingers against his legs. Then he sat down on a snow-covered log to eat. The pain that followed the striking of his fingers against his leg ceased so quickly that he was frightened. He had not had time to take a bite of his lunch. He struck the fingers repeatedly and returned them to the mitten. Then he bared the other hand for the purpose of eating. He tried to take a mouthful, but the ice around his mouth prevented him. Then he knew what was wrong. He had forgotten to build a fire and warm himself. He laughed at his own foolishness. As he laughed, he noted the numbness in his bare fingers. Also, he noted that the feeling which had first come to his toes when he sat down was already passing away. He wondered whether the toes were warm or whether they were numb. He moved them inside the moccasins and decided that they were numb. He pulled the mitten on hurriedly and stood up. He was somewhat frightened. He stamped forcefully until the feeling returned to his feet. It certainly was cold, was his thought. That man from Sulphur Creek had spoken the truth when telling how cold it got sometimes in this country, and he had laughed at him at the time. That showed one must not be too sure of things. There was no mistake about it. It was cold. He walked a few steps, stamping his feet, "'and waving his arms until reassured by the returning warmth. "'Then he took some matches and proceeded to make a fire. "'In the bushes, the high water had left a supply of sticks. "'From here he got wood for his fire, "'and working carefully from a small beginning, "'he soon had a roaring blaze. "'Bending over the fire, he first melted the ice from his face. "'With the protection of the fire's warmth, he ate his lunch.' For the moment, the cold had been forced away. The dog took comfort in the fire, laying at full length close enough for warm and far enough away to escape being burned. When the man had finished eating, he filled his pipe with tobacco and had a comfortable time with the smoke. Then he pulled on his mittens, settled his cap firmly about his ears, and started along the creek trail toward the left. The dog was sorry to leave and looked toward the fire, This man did not know cold. Possibly none of his ancestors had known cold, real cold. But the dog knew, and all of its family knew. And it knew that it was not good to walk outside in such fearful cold. It was the time to lie in a hole in the snow and to wait for this awful cold to stop. There was no real bond between the dog and the man. The one was the slave of the other. The dog made no effort to indicate its fears to the man. It was not concerned with the well-being of the man. It was for its own sake that it looked toward the fire. But the man whistled and spoke to it with the sound of the whip in his voice. So the dog started walking close to the man's heels and followed him along the trail. The man put more tobacco in his mouth and started a new growth of yellow ice on his face. Again, his moist breath quickly powdered the hair on his face with white. He looked around him. There did not seem to be so many pools of water under the snow on the left side of Hederson Creek, and for half an hour the man saw no signs of any. And then it happened. At a place where there were no signs, the man broke through. It was not deep. He was wet to the knees before he got out of the water to the firm snow. He was angry and cursed his luck aloud. He had hoped to get into camp with the boys at six o'clock, and this would delay him an hour. Now he would have to build a fire and dry his moccasins and socks. This was most important at that low temperature. He knew that much. So he turned aside to the bank which he climbed. On top, under several small pine trees, he found some firewood which had been carried there by the high water of last year. There were some sticks, but also larger branches and some dry grasses. He threw several large branches on top of the snow. This served for a foundation and prevented the young flame from dying in the wet snow. He made a flame by touching a match to a small piece of tree bark that he took from his pocket. This burned even better than paper. Placing it on the foundation, he fed the young flame with pieces of dry grass and with the smallest dry sticks. He worked slowly and carefully, realizing his danger. Gradually, as the flame grew stronger, he increased the size of the sticks with which he fed it. He sat in the snow, pulling the sticks from the bushes under the trees and feeding them directly to the flame. He knew he must not fail. When it's 75 below zero, a man must not fail in his first attempt to build a fire. This is especially true if his feet are wet. If his feet are dry and he fails, he can run along the trail for half a mile to keep his blood moving. But the blood in wet and freezing feet cannot be kept moving by running when it is 75 degrees below. No matter how fast he runs, the wet feet will freeze even harder. All this the man knew. The old man on Sulphur Creek had told him about it, and now he was grateful for the advice. Already all feeling had gone from his feet. To build a fire, he had been forced to remove his mittens, and the fingers had quickly become numb. His pace of four miles an hour had kept his heart pushing the blood to all parts of his body. But the instant he stopped, the action of the heart slowed down. He now received the full force of the cold. The blood of his body drew back from it. The blood was alive like the dog, like the dog it wanted to hide and seek cover away from the fearful cold. As long as he walked four miles an hour, the blood rose to the surface, but now it sank down into the lowest depths of his body. His feet and hands were the first to feel its absence. His wet feet froze first. His bare fingers were numb, although they had not yet begun to freeze. Nose and face were already freezing, while the skin of all his body became cold as it lost its blood. But he was safe. Toes and nose and face would be only touched by the frost because the fire was beginning to burn with strength. He was feeding it with the sticks that were the size of his finger, and in another minute he would be able to feed it with larger branches. Then he could remove his wet moccasins and socks. While they dry, he could keep his naked feet warm by the fire, rubbing them first with snow. The fire was a success. He was safe. He remembered the advice of the old man on Sulphur Creek and smiled. The man had been very serious when he said that no man should travel alone in that country after 50 below zero. Well, here he was. He'd had the accident, he was alone, and he had saved himself. Those old men were rather womanish, he thought. All a man must do is to keep his head, and was all right. Any man who was a man could travel alone but it was surprising the rapidity with which his face and nose were freezing. And he had not thought his fingers could lose their feeling in so short a time. Without feeling they were because he found it very difficult to make them move together to grasp a stick. They seemed far from his body and from him. When he touched a stick, he had to look to see whether or not he was holding it. All of which mattered little. There was the fire, promising life with every dancing flame, and he started to untie his moccasins. They were coated with ice. The thick socks were like iron almost to the knees. The moccasin strings were like ropes of steel, and for a moment he pulled them with his unfeeling fingers. Then, realizing the foolishness of it, he grasped his knife. But before he cut the strings, it happened. It was his own fault, or instead his mistake. He should not have built the fire under the pine tree. He should have built it in an open space, but it had been easier to pull the sticks from the bushes and drop them directly on the fire. Now the tree under which he had done this carried a weight of snow on its branches. No wind had been blowing for weeks, and each branch was heavy with snow. Each time he pulled a stick, he shook the tree slightly. There had been just enough movement to cause the awful thing to happen. High up in the tree, one branch dropped its load of snow. This fell on the branches beneath. This process continued, spreading through the whole tree, and the snow fell without warning upon the man and the fire, and the fire was dead. Where it had burned was a pile of fresh snow. The man was shocked. It was like hearing his own judgment of death. For a moment he sat and stared at the spot where the fire had been. Then he grew very calm. Perhaps the old man on Sulphur Creek was right. If he had a companion on the trail, he would be in no danger now. The companion could have built the fire. Now he must build the fire again, and this second time he must not fail. Even if he succeeded, he would be likely to lose some toes. His feet must be badly frozen by now, and there would be some time before the second fire was ready. Such were his thoughts, but he did not sit and think them. He was busy all the time they were passing through his mind. He made a new foundation for a fire, this time in the open space, where no tree would be above it. Next, he gathered dry grasses and tiny sticks, but he could not bring his fingers together to pull them out of the ground, but he was able to gather them by the handful. In this way, he also got many pieces that were undesirable, but it was the best he could do. He worked carefully, even collecting an armful of the larger branches to be used later when the fire gathered strength. And all the while the dog sat and watched him. There was an anxious look in its eyes because it depended upon him as the fire provider and the fire was slow in coming. When all was ready, the man reached in his pocket for the second piece of tree bark. He knew the bark was there, although he could not feel it with his fingers. He tried again and again, but he could not grasp it. And all the time in his mind, he knew that each instant his feet were refreezing. This thought alarmed him, but he fought against it and kept calm. Pulled on his mittens with his teeth and began swinging his arms. Then he beat his hands with all his strength against his sides. He did this while he was sitting down. Then he stood up to do it. All the while the dog sat in the snow, its tail curled warmly over its feet, and its sharp wolf ears bent forward as it looked at the man. And the man, as he waved his arms and hands, looked with longing at the creature that was warm and secure in the covering provided by nature. After a time, he began to notice some feeling in his beaten fingers. The feeling grew stronger until it became very painful, but the man welcomed the pain. He pulled the mitten from his right hand and grasped the tree bark from his pocket. The bare fingers were quickly numb again. Next, he brought about his pack of matches. The awful cold had already driven the life out of his fingers. In his effort to separate one match from the others, the whole pack fell in the snow. He tried to pick it out of the snow, but he failed, and the dead fingers could neither touch nor hold. Now he was very careful. He drove the thought of his freezing feet and nose and face from his mind. He devoted his whole soul to picking up the matches. He followed the movement of his fingers with his eyes, using his sense of sight instead of that of touch. When he saw his fingers on each side of the pack, he closed them. That is, he willed to close them because the fingers did not obey. He put the mitten on the right hand again and beat it fiercely against his knee. Then, with both mittened hands, he lifted up the pack of matches, along with much snow, to the front of his jacket but he had gained nothing. After some struggling, he managed to get the pack between his mittened hands. In this manner, he carried it to his mouth. The ice broke as he opened his mouth with a fierce effort. He used his upper teeth to rub across the pack in order to separate a single match. He succeeded in getting one, which he dropped on his jacket. His condition was no better. He could not pick up the match. Then he thought how he might do it. He picked up the match in his teeth and drew it across his leg. Twenty times he did this before he succeeded in lighting it. As it flamed, he held it with his teeth to the tree bark. But the burning smell went up his nose, causing him to cough, and the match fell into the snow and the flame died. The old man on Sulphur Creek was right, he thought, in the moment of controlled despair that followed. After fifty below zero... A man should travel with a companion. He beat his hands, but failed to produce any feeling in them. Suddenly he bared both hands, removing the mittens with his teeth. He caught the whole pack of matches between his hands. His arm muscles were not frozen, and he was able to press the hands tightly against the matches. Then he drew the whole pack along his leg. It burst into flame seventy matches at once. There was no wind to blow them out. He kept his head to one side to escape the burning smell and held the flaming pack to the tree bark. As he held it, he noticed some feeling in his hand. His flesh was burning. He could smell it. The feeling developed into pain. He continued to endure it. He held the flame of the matches to the bark that would not light readily because his own burning hands were taking most of the flame. Finally, when he could endure no more, he pulled his hands apart and the flaming matches fell into the snow, but the tree bark was burning. He began laying dry grasses and the tiniest sticks on the flame. He could not choose carefully, because they must be pieces that could be lifted between his hands. Small pieces of green grass stayed on the sticks, and he bit them off as well as he could with his teeth. He treated the flame carefully. It meant life, and it must not cease. The blood had left the surface of his body, and he now began to shake from the cold. A large piece of a wet plant fell on the little fire. He tried to push it out with his fingers. His shaking body made him push it too far, and he scattered the little fire over a wide space. He tried to push the burning grasses and sticks together again. Even with the strong effort that he made, his trembling fingers would not obey, and the sticks were hopelessly scattered. Each stick smoked a little and died. The fire provider had failed. As he looked about him, his eyes noticed the dog sitting across the ruins of the fire from him. He was making uneasy movements, slightly lifting one foot and then the other. The sight of the dog put a wild idea into his head. He remembered the story of the man caught in a storm who killed an animal and sheltered himself inside the dead body and thus was saved. He would kill the dog and bury his hands in the warm body until feeling returned to them. Then he could build another fire. He spoke to the dog, calling it to him. But in his voice was a strange note of fear that frightened the animal. It had never known the man to speak in such a tone before. Something was wrong, and it sensed danger. It knew not what danger, but somewhere in its brain arose a fear of the man. It flattened its ears at the sound of the man's voice. Its uneasy movements and the liftings of its feet became more noticeable. But it would not come to the man. He got down on his hands and knees and went toward the dog. But in this unusual position, again excited fear, and the animal moved away. The man sat in the snow for a moment and struggled for calmness. Then he pulled on his mittens using his teeth and then stood on his feet. He glanced down to assure himself that he was really standing because lack of feeling in his feet gave him no relation to the earth. His position, however, removed the fear from the dog's mind. When he commanded the dog with his usual voice, the dog obeyed and came to him. As it came within his reach, the man lost control. His arms stretched out to hold the dog, and he experienced real surprise when he discovered that his hands could not grasp. There was neither bend nor feeling in the fingers. He had forgotten for the moment that they were frozen, that they were freezing more and more. All this happened quickly, and before the animal could escape, he encircled its body with his arms. He sat down in the snow and in this fashion held the dog while it barked and struggled. But it was all he could do, hold its body encircled in his arms and sit there. He realized that he could not kill the dog. There was no way to do it. With his frozen hands, he could neither draw nor hold his knife, nor could he grasp the dog around the throat. He freed it and it dashed wildly away, still barking. It stopped forty feet away and observed him curiously, with ears sharply bent forward. The man looked down at his hands to locate them and found them hanging on the ends of his arms. He thought it curious that it was necessary to use his eyes to discover where his hands were. He began waving his arms, beating the mittened hands against his sides. He did this for five minutes. His heart produced enough blood to stop his shaking but no feeling was created in his hands. A certain fear of death came upon him. He realized that it was no longer a mere problem of freezing his fingers and toes or of losing his hands and feet. Now it was a problem of life and death with the circumstances against him. The fear made him lose control of himself, and he turned and ran along the creek bed on the old trail. The dog joined him and followed closely behind. The man ran blindly in fear such as he had never known in his life. Slowly, as he struggled through the snow, he began to see things again. The banks of the creek, the bare trees, and the sky. The running made him feel better. He did not shake anymore. Maybe if he continued to run, his feet would stop freezing. Maybe if he ran far enough, he would find the camp and the boys. Without doubt, he would lose some fingers and toes and some of his face but the boys would take care of him and save the rest of him when he got there. And at the same time, there was another thought in his mind that said he would never get to the camp in the boys. It told him that it was too many miles away and that the freezing had too great a start and that he would soon be dead. He pushed this thought to the back of his mind and refused to consider it. Sometimes it came forward and demanded to be heard, but he pushed it away and tried to think of other things. It seemed strange to him that he could run on feet so frozen that he could not feel them when they struck the earth and took the weight of his body. He seemed to be flying along above the surface and to have no connection with the earth. His idea of running until he arrived at the camp and the boys presented one problem. He lacked the endurance. Several times he caught himself as he was falling. Finally, he dropped to the ground and unable to stop his fall. When he tried to rise, he failed. He must sit and rest, he decided. Next time, he would merely walk and keep going. As he sat and regained his breath, he noticed that he was feeling warm and comfortable. He was not shaking, and it even seemed that a warm glow had come to his body. And yet, when he touched his nose or face, there was no feeling. Running would not bring life to them, nor would it help his hands and feet. Then the thought came to him that the frozen portions of his body must be increasing. He tried to keep this thought out of his mind and to forget it. He knew that such thoughts caused a feeling of fright in him, and he was afraid of such feelings. But the thought returned and continued until he could picture his body totally frozen. This was too much, and again he ran wildly along the trail. Once he slowed to a walk but the thought that the freezing of his body was increasing made him run again, and all the time the dog ran with him at his heels. When he fell a second time, the dog curled its tail over its feet and sat in front of him, facing him, curiously eager. The warmth and security of the animal angered him. He cursed it until it flattened its ears. This time the shaking because of the cold became more quickly. He was losing his battle with the frost. It was moving into his body from all sides. This thought drove him forward. But he ran no more than a hundred feet when he fell head first. It was his last moment of fear. When he had recovered his breath and his control, he sat and thought about meeting death with dignity. However, the idea did not come to him in exactly this manner. His idea was that he'd been acting like a fool. He'd been running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He was certain to freeze in his present circumstances, and he should accept it calmly. With this newfound peace of mind came the first sleepiness. A good idea, he thought, to sleep his way to death. Freezing was not as bad as people thought. There were many worse ways to die. He pictured the boys finding his body the next day, and suddenly he saw himself with them, coming along the trail and looking for himself and still, with them, he came around a turn in the trail and found himself lying in the snow. did not belong with himself any more. Even then, he was outside of himself, standing with the boys and looking at himself in the snow. It certainly was cold, was his thought. When he returned to the United States, he could tell the folks what real cold was. His mind went from this to the thought of the old man of Sulphur Creek, He could see him quite clearly, warm and comfortable, and smoking a pipe. You were right, old fellow, you were right, he murmured, to the old man of Sulphur Creek. Then the man dropped into what seemed to him the most comfortable and satisfying sleep he had ever known. The dog sat facing him and waited. The brief day ended in a long evening. There were no signs of a fire to be made. Never in the dog's experience had it known a man to sit like that in the snow and make no fire. As the evening grew darker, its eager longing for the fire mastered it. With much lifting of its feet, it cried softly. Then it flattened its ears, expecting the man's curse, but the man remained silent. Later, the dog howled loudly, and still later it moved close to the man and caught the smell of death. This made the animal back away. A little longer it delayed, howling under the stars that leaped and danced and shone brightly in the cold sky. Then it turned and ran along the trail toward the camp it knew, where there were the other food and fire providers.
0: That does it for us today in the dead of winter. We hope you enjoyed our little trip among the snowdrifts of poetry and short fiction that explores the business of wintering over. We hope that it might inspire you to spend the next six weeks or so, perhaps getting out there for a nice, crisp evening walk, or possibly take some time to snowshoe, cross-country ski, or escape into the wild, white yonder in a snowmobile of your choosing. Today's Wintering Over show was performed by Jeff Bowman, Brian Peterson, Carol Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke, all members of the Opionga Readers Theatre. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for the producer of the Yapionga line, Barry Conway, we'd all like to wish you a good day, and God bless.